to be used by you and to love others in your name. God, be with us, mold our hearts, shape our minds, for it's your name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. All right, it is good to see you guys again this morning, and uh, as you're being seated, we uh, love to celebrate God's Word together, so if you would, turn in your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 2, and we will celebrate the fact that we get to read God's Word. That's something to be thankful for this year, that not everywhere in our world gets the pleasure of being able to gather like this and to celebrate the fact that they can read God's Word together, but we have that freedom, and so we're grateful for it. And uh, as you're looking in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be in the first four verses this morning. Uh, and I know that you just sat down. We're going to have to do this better, aren't we? We're going to have to coordinate this better. I know you just sat down, but would you honor God's word by standing so we can read it together? And uh, next week, we'll try to coordinate that a little better so that we don't sit everybody. Yeah, up and down and up and down. and up. It feels like aerobics, right? So we don't want to do that. Uh, here's what Philippians chapter 2 says, verse 1. Therefore, if any of you have encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if there's any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray together. Well, Father God, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it holds for our lives. And God, we just pray that this morning, as we uh, have the opportunity to, to talk about your word and to talk about our lives and how they intertwine and what you want to say to us and do in us, I pray, God, that you would reveal your truth to us. Let us have ears to really hear what you're saying. Help our eyes to be open to see who you are. And God, let everything about us change in accordance with your word and your truth as your spirit reveals it. Lord, we love you and we praise you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, for the past two weeks, we've been talking in this series about getting over ourselves. And I know that for some of you, that may, if you're new to the church today, this is your first time, that may be a little awkward and uncomfortable. But we're really trying to say we need to get over ourselves in order to be on mission rightly with God. And to do things under His power, under His authority, under His sovereignty. And so we've got to get out of God's way and let Him do what He wants to. Uh, and in order to do that, over the last two weeks we've talked about a few things. Some of us have this issue that we have to get over of being too prideful. And kind of going, you know what, I can just do things. I don't even need God's help. I'm good enough on my own. I've got enough knowledge, enough uh, understanding about things. I've got enough skills and talents and abilities that I don't really need God. I can just go out and do things. And if God happens to bless that, that's fine. But I don't really need God in the middle of that. I'm just fine on my own. And we said, you know, you've really got to get over yourself. And get past those things that we would look at and say they're part of our flesh. What Paul says, they are the, uh, the part of our flesh that we elevate and say, this is my abilities, my talents, my power in me, uh, in my understanding about what I can do to make everything happen without the, the help of God. And so we looked at Philippians chapter 3 in that week and said, you know what, Paul said the ability to get over ourselves in that is that we have to look at our carnal selves and our, um, our, our um, common traits, our abilities, and we have to say that stuff is all rubbish. The Greek word actually is dung. That stuff is just a mess, right? And so we've got to get out of that stuff and of our lives, and we've got to trust God to do what only God can do. But then we said the other part of that, the other side of the pendulum, and last week we talked about this, is that some of us aren't so prideful. Some of us really fall on the other side where we go, you know, I'm just not good enough. In fact, how could God ever use me? I'm not, I'm not of any value. I don't have any skills. I don't have any talents. I'm just, how could God possibly, and if you knew my past, you would never say that God would do something in my life. I've just done too many bad things. I've made too many mess-ups, too many mistakes. 
If you knew who I have been, you wouldn't say God would choose to use me. And yet we see in Scripture, and what we talked about last week, is that there are so many people that just had unbelievable mistakes in their past. And yet God said, I'll still choose to use you. It's about God's grace, not about your abilities or your inabilities even. Some of us are so insufficient, we feel like God will never do anything with my life. And we have to get over ourselves in thinking that. Because what that does is it says to God, you're not powerful enough to use somebody like me. You, God, can't possibly do anything with me. And God's going, really? I mean, I made a person out of dirt. I'm pretty sure I can do whatever I want to out of you, right? And so that's just part of the equation. Today we want to kind of wrap up this series, and we're going to look at one last thing. And I know some of these things are often easier said than done. I can stand up here and go, hey, get over yourself. Stop being so prideful or stop being so insignificant and just trust God. And it's like, okay, that's easy to hear, easy to say, but how do I actually do those things in practice? And the good news about that is that God never said that this was a quick turnaround. Like you're going to go from thinking, I'm so prideful, okay, all of a sudden I'm full of humility. Or I'm so, uh, so undeserving, okay, all of a sudden you're just going to feel like I can trust God with anything. And the Bible says that it's a matter of time. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, until Jesus comes back, he's going to be at work in your life. And it's a work in progress. You are a work in progress. Getting over yourself is a work in progress. And so today what we want to do is wrap up this series by helping us look at one passage that's going to, I hope, help us take a huge step toward getting over ourselves. And where the first two weeks, maybe you've kind of been able to check out and go, okay, humility, not my thing. I don't have to listen to this one. Or pridefulness, not really have to listen to this one. Okay, I'll check out. That's for somebody else. Today, this is for all of us, right? This hits us right where we are. And I want us to listen to this passage again because it's going to help us take a huge step in getting over ourselves. Listen again to what Paul wrote in Philippians 2. Therefore, if anyone has encouragement from being united with Christ, if there's any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And so as we grow in our love for Jesus and as we develop this deeper bond as God's family, Paul says there are some defining characteristics that we need to recognize. And he starts to lay them out for us and says, as you grow in your faith, as we grow closer in love for one another, what should be the defining characteristics of maturity in the Christian life? And as we're growing toward getting over ourselves, what should it look like? And so Paul lays out a few things for us. The first one is this. He says to be like-minded. And so there's no blanks or anything on your outline today, but if you just want to write some things down, here's what Paul gives us in this structure of this passage. He just says, be like-minded. And so when we think about being like-minded, you kind of go, okay, we all think differently. We all behave differently. How is being like-minded possible? Like, how are we going to get on the same wavelength? Because I practice things differently and do things differently than you do. I cheer for Clemson and you cheer for Tennessee. And so how is this all going to work out? Switch that. I cheer for Tennessee. Some of you losers cheer for Clemson. Okay, and so, um, hey, they're kind of what? What? They're number one. I can't make fun of them. It's fine. It's fine. They're big boys. They can take it. All right? So when you think about this, he goes, you be like-minded. Well, how is that possible? Well, in order to be like-minded in the way that the Bible talks about it, it means that we have to elevate the truth of God's Word to a place to where we are able to say, it's not about my thoughts, what I believe. It's about what the Word of God says. And we all, as a body of believers, have to get on the same page about saying, I will place the importance of God's Word as the highest priority. And in order to get over myself, I'll say, even if I have a difficult time with it, 
I'm going to take the truth of what God's Word says and I'm going to put it as a place of importance. And I'm going to say I'm going to learn to submit my life to God's authority. And as each of us do that, we'll start becoming like-minded. And we'll start seeing ourselves under God's authority. So when we think about all this, this is a daily thing in life. The Bible determines what we do and how we act and, and how we behave. Not pop culture, not our political affiliations, not our personal preferences, not our race. The Bible needs to inform us on how to live and how to act. And when we put ourselves into the submission of Christ and His Word, we'll become like-minded. And then Paul says the next thing is this, that we need to have the same love. Now, this isn't the kind of emotional love that's, uh, that's kind of unstable and may not last, like when you fall in love when you're 13, right? And it's kind of like, oh, I'm in love. And it's like, yeah, that's going to last for about two seconds. Uh, and so it's not puppy love. This is a love that is stable. It's committed. It's unconditional. This is the love that Christ has for his church and that we as the church of God should have for one another. And Paul says you start to love God in this way, you have the same love. You share love for one another. You say, I would do anything for you. I will live my life for you the same way that Christ lived his life for me. I'm going to elevate you in importance so that we can take steps toward being one in love. And then the last thing he says is that we become one in spirit and one in mind. So Paul encourages us to have harmony and unity in the very deepest places of our lives. He starts talking about our minds and our hearts. He says, in the very deepest places of who you are emotionally and psychologically and physically, you start to elevate one another. You put others in the place of priority. You have the same spirit, have the same mind. Place yourself under Christ's authority. Now, when we start to see that, the next thing we're going to find in the passage is Paul really giving us a roadmap for getting over ourselves. And so maybe you just write the word roadmap and then write down some things as we kind of start doing this. Because here's what Paul says. In order to get over ourselves in verses 3 and 4, he's going to give us something to stop and he's going to give us something to start. And so I want us to look at it together. Look at verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing then out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And so the first thing we see here that Paul says is there's got to be something you stop. You want to get over yourself? There's something you have to stop, and it has to stop now. And so here's what he says. Stop. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Isn't that great? Because, look, you, you want to stop putting yourself ahead of everybody else? Don't do anything. Do nothing. No thing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And so Paul starts to lay these things out. He says, the, the selfish ambition of our life, nothing that we do should be with an attitude of personal advancement to the detriment of someone else or even to our own Christian character. He says, don't do anything that's going to be a hindrance to someone else being elevated in status or to you losing your own Christian character that you would say, I'm trying to elevate myself and people are looking at me and going, what are you doing? That doesn't look like Jesus at all. So he says, do nothing out of vain conceit or selfish ambition. That selfish amb ambition, the word literally means to advance oneself without the thought for others. That you're saying, I want to get ahead, and I don't care what anybody else has to suffer in my wake as I move forward. You get out of my way so I can climb the ladder. Whether that's relationally or socially or in your job or through school, whatever it might be, academics, whatever it is that you're going for. He says, you start getting in the way and where other people are in your way and you're stepping on them, that's selfish ambition. 
He says, you can't do anything out of a selfish ambition. And then the second part of it, he says, in vain conceit. He says, this is the only time, by the way, that this word is used in the New Testament. When he talks about the word for vain conceit, it literally means, when translated, vain glory. And so when Paul says about this, is that this word actually means we're trying to elevate ourselves so highly that we steal glory from God. And that we want people to see what we do and go, oh man, can you imagine? Look how great Joel is. Let's just all applaud for Joel. Isn't he awesome? Isn't he fantastic? And me going, that's right. I'm so good. Go ahead. Give it up. Go ahead and clap. I'm, you know, clap. Instead of saying, hey, you know what? That's God in me and it's not about who I am. It's, let's just elevate that. Let's put that back on Christ and on God. I'm grateful that you see God at work in me, but this is not about me. This is about whatever God can do through me. I'm just a vessel for his glory. But he says, when you start to think about vain glory, when you start to think about vain conceit, your idea is that you want the attention. You crave that. I hope other people will notice what I'm doing so I can take credit, so that I can get glory. And Paul says, you do nothing out of vain conceit. Do nothing where the glory is attached to you. Anything that comes to you, you deflect it to God. You just say, this is for his glory. Anything I am is only because of who He is in me. It's not about me. And so I have to get over myself by stopping those things. So in essence, Paul's saying in order to get over yourself, you need to stop doing anything that's for the sake of personal advancement and to the detriment of others or your own Christian character and don't do things that steal glory from God. So that's the nutshell of that part. But then he's going to say, but there is something you should start doing. So it's not all negative. He goes, if you want to get over yourself... Here's something you should start doing. So let's start some things. He says this. Also, uh, we need to start doing this in verse 3, at the end of verse 3. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking for your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. So he says this. In, in humility, we've got to value others above us. Value others above yourself. To get over ourselves, we have to take the position that other people are more important than us. Now, we all just got a great object lesson in this on Black Friday, right? How many of you went shopping on Black Friday? Go ahead, raise your hands, be honest. Liars. How many of you really went black shopping? Okay, okay, thanks, thanks. A few more hands went up, good. All right, so anybody in Black Friday shopping that was just like, why don't you go ahead of me in line? This would be an awesome chance for me to elevate you and get behind me. I just want to make you more important than me, so you guys just go ahead and jump up here, right? Nobody does that. We're all fighting each other and kicking and throwing things at each other and grabbing stuff off the shelves, right? And nobody has the mind of Christ in this. We're all going, I just got to get my stuff. Paul goes, listen, if you want to really live out the Christian life and get over yourself. You've got to learn to put other people above you. You've got to make others more important than you. Even in crazy situations, even in difficult situations, you learn to say to others, you're more important than me. You live a third-person type lifestyle that God is first in your life, that others are second, and that you come third. He says, I'll bless that because you're learning to get over yourself and elevate others to a place of importance. And so I can imagine that when we see these kinds of things that we say, man, you're more important than me. You can jump ahead of me in line. You can do whatever it takes. I want to elevate you. I want to make you more important. So husbands, how do we do this with our wives? Are we elevating our wives to a place where we're saying, hey, honey, you're more important than me? Or do we come home at the end of the day and go, I think it's time for you to serve me now. I've been working hard all day. So you do something for me. Or do we come home and go, hey, what can I do for you? What can I make a difference in your life today? How can I serve you? 
Man, I wish I could stand up here and say that I do that every day. I wish I could. I strive for that. I want to come home and just be like, hey, Heather, what can I do for you? How can I give you a break for a few minutes? You've had the kids all after me, been working all day. What can I do for you? I wish I could say that I do that all the time. I strive for that, but I fail in it sometimes. But husbands, what if we said to our wives, hey, you're more important than me? And wives, what if in return you are also trying to live a life where you're saying to your husbands, hey, you're more important than me. I want to put your needs ahead of my own. I want to elevate you to a place of importance. You're more important than me. What if our biggest fights in life were the fact that we were trying to one-up how we made more important the other person in our relationship instead of the other things that we get so beat up about? What if we were saying, man, we fight all the time because I'm always trying to make her more important and she's always trying to make me more important. And I just get so ticked off that she wants me to be more important. That would be a good way to live your life, right? That would be okay. But instead, we usually fight for the things that we want for us instead of for the other person. But this doesn't just work in relationships in our marriages. This goes to every aspect of life. What if we were to live this way when we think about school for you students, that we choose to make other people more important than us? What if it's here at church where we just say, hey, everybody's more important than me. You, you can have a place of importance, of a place of priority, because you're more important than me. What about your job? Who could you elevate this week and say, hey, I'm going to take a step back so that you can grow in importance. You're, you're more important than me. And that's okay. What is it in your life that you would say, I've got to find ways to, to elevate other people because that's behind the heart of God. And to get over myself, I've got to make other people more important than me. That's what God is desiring for our lives. So what does it take to get to that place? How do we get there? Because it's not natural for us. This is a supernatural power of God working in us to say, I'm going to elevate other people in status. Because our, you know, our initial reaction is that I want to be most important, right? That's what we're kind of trained to do. I want to be most important. I'll do whatever it takes to be more important than you. So it is a supernatural act for someone like us to say to someone else, you're more important than me. So how do we get to that place? The answer is this, through humility. And so Paul tells us, when we look at verse 4, or in verse 3, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you should look to the interest of others. Now here's the truth. When Paul was writing this letter, he was writing to a Greek-dominated culture. Humility was not a virtue that was highly esteemed in the Greek world. They would have looked at servants or slaves and said, slaves should have an attitude of humility. You better bow down when I walk in the room. You better ask me, is there anything I can do for you, sir? Right? He says that, that mentality was of slaves. Greeks would have never thought I should elevate other people above me. I'm the most important. And yet Paul says when you look at the attitude of Christ in the next part of the passage in Philippians 2, he says you should take on the attitude of Christ, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Yet he made himself a servant. He took on the form of human nature, and he humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even to death on a cross, the worst form of punishment that you could experience. He says, Jesus humbled himself. Here's the God of heaven, not seeking for others to say, elevate me, elevate me. Jesus came to serve others and put us ahead of himself. And he said, I've come so that you can have life. And that life comes through the humble service of the God who would say to each of us, you're more important. How could God say that to us? And yet he does. 
He says, I'll humble myself and even die on your behalf so that you can have life eternally. That's the heart of God. And so when we see this, we see God saying, I'm going to make you more important than me. So during Jesus' life, he told two stories in Luke chapter 14. If you want to flip over there, let's look at these quickly together. Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 14. Jesus had been invited to a banquet, and he's there. And as he's at the banquet, he's healed someone, uh, even though he's probably not supposed to. It's a Sabbath day, and so the Pharisees that have invited him to this banquet, they're watching him, and they're, they're trying to scout out and see who this guy really is. They're trying to look for a way to fault him. But then as Jesus uh, looks at the banquet, he starts noticing some things. And listen to what he says in verse 7. He says, he noticed how the guests who came to the banquet picked their places of honor at the table. And he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast... Do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. And if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Hey, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place, because that's all that's left. But when you're invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, Find a friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the first story that Jesus tells us here, the first scenario is that you're invited as a guest to a banquet or a wedding feast. Because when you get invited somewhere, don't go in and go, hey, here's the most important seat. Here's the one closest to the host. Let me sit here at the prime table. This is where I'm going to plop myself down because I'm important. I should be right here with the head of the party. He says then, but the problem is, is if somebody comes in that's more important than you, and the host goes, oh, I'm sorry, that place was reserved for him because he's way more important than you. What are you even doing up here? And he's going to ask you to move, and the only seat that's left is the one at the end of the table. He goes, then what are you going to do? You're going to walk away in shame, humiliated, head down, trudging to the back of the line, right? And this other person is going to be elevated. Jesus says, in fact, what you should do is come in and take the least wanted place, the least desired place. And then when the host looks around and goes, hey, what are you doing down here? This is for people that I don't even like. Come up here and join the party table, right? Come with me. And he'll elevate you to a place of importance because you've put yourself in a place where you said, oh, everybody else is more important than me. Give someone else a chance to elevate you. Don't elevate yourself. In fact, make others more important than you. See others as more important than you. Everybody else is more important. They should be toward the head of the table, not me. So this first scenario is that we get invited to a banquet. The second scenario that Jesus talks about this is that you actually host a banquet or you host a dinner party. You have people over to your house. And so here's the second part of it. Start in, um, in verse 12. And Jesus said this to his host. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives, or even your rich neighbors. For if you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And so Jesus says, listen, if you're going to host people at your house, don't invite people that are going to be able to do something in return to you. You can invite your family. You're going to invite your friends. You're going to invite some wealthy people that you know in your community. And what are they going to do in response? Hey, thanks so much for having us over. Next weekend, I'm going to host this thing. You should come to my house. I'll repay you for your kindness. Jesus says, don't do that. You want to do something that's really impressive in the kingdom of God? You go out and host something that's for people that couldn't possibly do anything back for you. You elevate other people. You make them more important. That's the priority of the kingdom. And so when we see Jesus talking about these things, we say, man, the illustration is 
that we invite people who can't do anything for us. That we're not trying to use other people for our advantage. We're saying we want to do something that you can't possibly repay. So this past week, I saw a story, probably on Facebook. I wish I was more important. It was like a giant news channel or something, but it probably was on Facebook. Uh, and so there was a story about a, a woman who was getting married. And the day before the wedding, her fiancé got cold feet or whatever and walked out of the relationship. And her parents had spent a ton of money on this venue and catering for the event. There was this big ballroom, and it was this nice, fancy thing that was going to happen for her wedding. So what do you do? What would you do in that situation? If your fiancé walked out and you're going, okay, great, now we've got this whole thing, what am I supposed to do? I, I mean, for me, it's like I'm putting on my pajamas and going and sitting in bed for a few weeks. I don't know. What am I going to do? I was such a girl right there, wasn't I? I'm so sorry. I know. So if you leave me at the altar, I'm not sticking around to see what's going to happen. But here's what's cool about this girl in this story. She actually went to her parents and said, hey, we've already got the ballroom reserved. We've already got the food that's coming. In fact, it's already been cooked. It's going to be tomorrow. And so why don't we do something for other people? So she called a local charity in the community that they lived and said, invite anybody you can that will come. Homeless folks, whatever it is, veterans, I don't care, bring them. And this charity started calling people and just organizing, and people started showing up at this really nice hotel with this incredibly nice banquet room, and they didn't look like they belonged. And the girl said at first when they started coming in, they, you could tell they didn't feel like they fit in there. But we ushered them in, the staff ushered them into this banquet room, and they sat down. And this bride and her parents started serving these people, a meal they could probably have never possibly imagined eating. They could get seconds if they wanted. They could get thirds if they wanted. They filled up this banquet room with people who didn't belong there. And they just served them. And I thought, man, what a beautiful picture of what Jesus is saying to us. That when we do something, it should be for those who can't possibly do anything in return for us. We're not looking to be rewarded. We're looking to elevate others and show others importance. So here's the question, because I can maybe kind of see this going in your mind. Here's the question. What if I get taken advantage of when I do that? Have you ever been in that situation where you go, man, I see this homeless person on the side of the road, and they're asking for money, and what if I give them money, and they just go out and blow it? They don't even use it on food. They go out and get drunk, whatever. What if they take advantage of my generosity? And so you just say, no, I'm not even going to do anything for them. What if I get taken advantage of? Can I ask you a question in return? What if you do? Did Jesus, did the Bible ever say, only do for people if they're going to use it, you know, in a good manner? No, he doesn't put any stipulations on it. He just says, you love the unlovable. You love the poor. You love the hurt, the lost, the broken. You serve them. There's no stipulation. And so when we think about this, we say, man, I don't want to be taken advantage of, but I think that's actually the point that Jesus is making. Don't worry about if you do a nice thing for others as a way to elevate them above yourselves and then get taken advantage of. Here's why. Because Jesus ends the story by saying this in verse 14. And then when you do these things for the crippled and the poor and the lame and the blind, when you will be blessed, although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And so here's what Jesus says that's beautiful to me. As you do for people out of the generosity and the kindness of your heart, whatever it is in your heart that you feel the Holy Spirit prompting you to do. And don't worry about if they take advantage of your kindness and your generosity. That's not the point. I'm watching from heaven and I'll repay you on the day that I come back. You'll get what you deserve for your kindness, not in this world, but in the time to come, in the age to come, in eternity. 
you serve people here, I'll serve you in eternity. Jesus promises he'll take care of us. And so you do what you feel like God's calling you to do to help others, regardless of if they can do anything to pay you back. And so we see that all of this leads to a place where we just are able to give and are free to give in generosity. Here in the, the room right behind us, our G2 students today are learning a, a similar lesson. And I wanted to kind of give you guys the life app for what they're learning today, the lesson that goes along with this. Their life app today is lend a hand without looking for applause. Isn't that great? Lend a hand without looking for applause. You do whatever you can for others and don't expect thanks and applause in return. God's watching. And the things that you do in secret, he'll bring to light when the time is right. He knows how to reward those who do those good things in his name for his kingdom and for his glory. So you do what you're called to do. You could do incredible things to elevate others and constantly live a life that says, you know what, you're more important than me. And don't worry if no one ever gives you applause. The reward is waiting in heaven. And here's what I've learned from my life. I've learned over the years that putting others first uh, and making others more important than me, it's actually fun. It's a blast. It really is. This week I was talking about this with our staff, and all week long Matt and I have had this running joke kind of going, and in the office we would do something and be like, hey, Matt, you need to make me more important than you because that's going to help you in the long run, man. And so you need to do this for me because I'm more important than you. And Matt's going, no, 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 you need to do it for me because I'm more important than you. And so we had this back and forth going about who could we make more important. It was really like, okay, Matt, I'm going to make you more important than me. What can I do for you? And Matt goes, no, 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 man, what can I do for you? I want to make you more important than me. And so now we're fighting, right? And this is the whole scenario with husbands and wives. If we're fighting because we're trying to elevate each other, that's a good place to be in life. And so we've got this whole thing and we're going all of this really looks and goes it's fun to make others feel more important than you it's a good place to be so let me give you a starting point because some of us in the room this morning would go okay i see all the need in the world it's out there it's huge it's vast there's a lot of need how do i elevate everybody to be more important than me let me give you a starting point because it's not necessarily about everybody here's one thing i want you to write down in your notes today here's the action step of the morning do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. You may not be able to serve the whole world. You may not be able to serve every homeless person. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Say to one person this week, you're more important than me. Who's the one that you'll say, you're more important than me? I want to get out of the way. I'm going to be less so that you can become more. I'm going to take a back seat. You're more important than me. So when you wish you could feed every homeless person in the Tri-Cities, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. When you wish that you could give a Christmas gift to every family who's in need this holiday season, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. When you see people shivering in the cold and you wish that you could give a warm coat to everybody in our community that's in need of one, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. When you have friendships and relationships where you know there's brokenness and you wish you could help everybody fix their problems and be right in the middle of their issues, that are their heart struggles, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Stand in the gap for people, but do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Saying to one person, you're more important than me, and that really, it could change the life of that one. It could change your life. So you do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Make other people more important. And here's how I want to start closing up this morning. I want to just tell you how excited I am about what I see happening within the life of our church. As we learn as a church to say, others are more important than us. 
we want to put others ahead of ourselves. And so I just want to give you a list of a few things that we've been doing at this church this past month, maybe a little more than a month. But it's just us, us saying, you're more important than us. Hey, City of Kingsport. Hey, Tri-Cities. You're more important than us. Let us give to you. Let us do for you. Let me just talk you through a few things. First thing is this, that we raised over $1,000 for families in Harlan, Kentucky. The youth group raised that money as you guys were generous to support that at their chili supper a few weeks ago. We found out right after doing this that there's a shutdown in some of the coal mines there. 84 additional families lost jobs within two weeks of us doing that event. So we were able to go to them and say, here's a thousand plus dollars in cash. You can do whatever you want to with it. They asked us instead of bringing gifts this year, just to do Walmart gift cards that they could give to families because gifts weren't the priority, feeding their family was. So we were able to take a thousand dollars and just distribute it among families and just say, take care of your family, do whatever you need. Generosity. We've collected coats and cans. The children's ministry has been doing this. Uh, today they hope to hit their goal, 200 cans and 60 coats that we're going to give to a charity here in Kingsport to help make sure that people are clothed and fed this winter. So kids are doing that. Operation Christmas Child, we just wrapped that up a couple of weeks ago. There were 85-plus boxes that were donated to Operation Christmas Child. 85 that came through here. More of you that I've heard say, we've got boxes, but we're going to take them ourselves to the distribution center. We're going to go and do that, or can somebody else take those for us when we go? So 85-plus boxes that are going to go all around the world to give children Christmas this year and share the gospel of Christ. That's a huge thing. Last week here at the church, we hosted Interfaith Hospitality. And we helped a family in transition that's going from being in a position where they've been homeless to moving to a place where they're getting housing. And we were able to host them here. You guys as a church, we brought meals to them. We stayed with them. We served them. We loved on them all week last week. And that family's been able to get into a housing situation. In fact, we just posted this weekend some of their needs that they have now that they're in housing but need furniture and, and clothes and uh, and kitchen items and all those kinds of things. It's posted on the Hub. If you want to go and look, if there's a way that you can help, we'd encourage you to do that. The hot chocolate giveaway during the Christmas parade. We gave away 350 cups of hot chocolate on a day. It was 65 degrees outside. It's pretty awesome, right? Just going, hey, Kingsford, this is free. We had people trying to give us money. We're going, no, 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 we don't want to take your money. This is free. We're just doing this because we love you, because Jesus loves you. It's 65 degrees. Here's hot chocolate. Go for it, man. People coming back for multiple cups. It was awesome. John Sevier Middle School, we've started this partnership with them where we do lunch bunch for the last two months. We've taken 10 or 11, 12 people to John Sevier and just sat down and had lunch with kids. Just talked to them. It's been amazing to see. Last week, you wrote thank you cards to the teachers of John Sevier and the staff and the, the faculty there. So we were able to deliver those last week just to say thank you to them for what they do in our community. It's an incredible picture of what God's doing. Fifteen turkeys were given away this past week by Brent and our kitchen team to help people have a nice Thanksgiving within our church and within the community. A hundred plus Thanksgiving meals were fed to hunger first by our kitchen team last week. We just were able to give and say, we want you guys, you're homeless, you're in a need. We want to make sure you have a nice Thanksgiving. A hundred plus meals were given just through our church ministry. And then last, the prison ministry angel tree. Our community groups here at the church, we've got about 11 community groups. And through those groups, we're helping 40 children and their parents to have Christmas this year because these children have parents who are in prison or in jail. And we've stepped up and said, we want those 40 kids that we have access to to have an opportunity to have a nice Christmas and to get a gift from mom or dad or uncle or grandpa or whoever it is that's in jail. They're going to get Christmas from their loved one because we're stepping up in a generous way to say, you're more important than us. That's a huge, huge blessing. But here's the deal. There's always more to do. 
There's always more people to serve. This is where it gets overwhelming, right? It's like, look at all we've done. Look at all there still is to do. Oh, my gosh, we are never going to get done. No, we're not. But you know what? Saved people serve people. And we have a God who is generous, and we can follow in his footsteps, and we're going to step up, and we're going to continue to help the needs of others in our community. For as long as we're here as a church, we're going to serve, and we're going to give, and we're going to say to others, you're more important than us. So that's where we start to finish up this morning. I want to tell you one last story about something that's taking place. Just this week, I was told about an opportunity to help. Uh, Daniel OMB is leading a charge this year to make sure that uh, every angel tree child in the city of Kingsport is taken care of. And so uh, Daniel did this a few years ago. He noticed when he was going to the mall and shopping at Christmas time that the angel tree still had a lot of names on it where people hadn't taken off names for the angel tree. And so he called and said, Anything that's left at the end of your time, they close the tree two weeks before Christmas. And so for, for anybody who wants to get angel tree stuff, it closes two weeks before Christmas. Daniel said, anything that's left over, tell me. I'm going to make sure that it gets taken care of. Not knowing how he would pay for it, not knowing how it would happen, but he just said, I want to do it. And through his generosity and through other people that came alongside of him, he was able to take care of over 200 kids getting Christmas that year. Well, this year he was walking through the mall again. That was several years ago. This year he told me he was walking through the mall again and saw the angel tree and it's just covered in names. And he said he felt like God prompted on his heart, do it again, take care of those kids. So he's already called and set up and said, anybody at the end of the time that's left, I'll take care of. And so one way we can jump in and help with that is to just get on his team. Let me give you a couple of things you can do. And if you'd like to help, you can see Daniel. Daniel, wave at everybody. He told me he would kill me if I brought him on stage, so I'm telling his story. Here's some ways you can help. Number one, give a cash donation. Just hand him some money. Let him go do what he needs to do. Number two, volunteer to go shopping and buy gifts with Daniel. How cool would that be? We're going to go shopping for 200 plus kids. Yeah, all right. Go. Go for it. Number three, volunteer to organize the gifts that are purchased. Number four, help wrap the gifts once they're bought. It takes a long time to wrap 200 plus Christmas gifts. And number five, help deliver the gifts to the Angel Tree kids. You can be a part of that this Christmas. And so we hope that you will. And if there's a way that you want to serve in that or another capacity, whatever it is that you feel like God is calling you to do, get over yourself to make others more important. So let me just ask you that question. Are you ready to get over yourself? It takes humility. It takes getting out of that vain conceit and selfish ambition. And it takes us looking at others and saying, you're more important than me. I want to put you first. You're more important. That's right at the heart of God. It's right at the heart of Jesus. And so when we do that, we start to look a lot like our Father. So I want to live my life, and I hope you'll live your life, saying, you're more important than me. Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, so grateful this morning to you, God, for who you are, for how powerful you are, for the fact that you are a God who is generous and who gives to us when we don't deserve it. Father, that you have said to us that we're important to you, so much so that your son came to this earth and died. That he didn't consider equality with God something to be attached to or something to be grasped at, but he made himself a servant. And he died on the cross for us to show us that we have value in his eyes. So God, as a result of our value in your eyes, will you help us to value others and to make others more important than us? Help us get over ourselves, God. Help us to love our wives and our husbands and our children and our friends in a way that says, you're more important than me. We'll give you all the glory for it. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Waiting. 
the action of staying where one is. Time passing. Expecting something to happen until one day it does. Advent is a time of waiting, of hope, of anticipation. God tells us in Galatians that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Advent is the church in waiting. The church's yearly reminder each December of what Christians worldwide anticipate in the days before Christmas. We wait for Christmas as Israel waited centuries for a savior, for God to fulfill his covenant. They waited for a virgin son to Abraham's line, a descendant of Isaac, Jacob, and David, for a branch from the rod of Jesse, for a baby born in Bethlehem, called Emmanuel. For generations, God's people waited for the fulfillment of countless Old Testament prophecies of a Savior who would light this world brighter than any Magi star. Jesus was the long-awaited hope to a dark and sinful world. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. As Christians wait for the light of Christmas, the four Advent candles are lit with each week's passing, and blue decorates the altar to receive our King with hope. But we know that our hoping and waiting doesn't stop at Christmas, because He's coming back on the last day, a second Advent. So as we hope for Christmas, we continue to wait and pray for our Savior to come again.